When its red glow shines upon the land, the aimless spirits of slain monsters return to flesh, just as they did in a war long past. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The world is threatened once again. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also I totally forgot my name there. I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is Wisdom Takes Time, the second part of our discussion on 2023's The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. But first, our spoiler warning. We're spoiling it all, folks. Um, we did our spoiler-free reaction back a couple episodes ago in A Blade That Shatters, but we specifically held off on major story beats as well as talking about the ending, but all of that is on the table for discussion today. Where do we want to start talking about the end of, or not even the end, but just the story of Tears of the Kingdom? Um, okay, how about let's start with, um, let's actually start with the beginning. I was going to be like, let's start with the end because haha, balls out for spoilers. But actually, I want to go, go back to the beginning, Lizzie McGuire voice, um, to talk about how the ending is set up, which I, like sounds stupid and kind of talking about a story sense. But like, I think that more so than breath of the wild which like breath of the wild it's not the breath of the wild doesn't have a story i think the people who say that are morons but like breath of the wild has a vastly more kind of fluid story it's it starts with not knowing it starts with forgetting um and it starts with like having to re-enter the world or enter the world really for the first time and learn about it for the first time whereas tears of the kingdom starts with like a very clearly established sense of self for its main characters for for link and for zelda and then, um, and then basically, literally blows it apart from beneath them. Um, and I guess one of my, I, I guess maybe the the question to start this off is like with playing through the start of that that kind of initial bit before um, Zelda gets vamped back in time. Um, as you were playing through that, did you have a sense that like, I mean, I'm sure everybody saw the spoilers about it being Ganondorf or just like followed the pattern. But like, did you have a sense when playing through that, that you could kind of figure out where this game would ultimately go or was unfolding through like the dragon's tear quest through everything else was, was that kind of surprising to you the whole way through? Um, I would say it did not go where I expected it to from, let's say the very beginning of the game where you go underneath Hyrule castle and discover the corpse of the demon King um, who he himself is Ganon in some fashion. 
Um, and then, like you say, he shoots Zelda back in time, whereas Link loses an arm and winds up in the sky somehow. Um, I always figured, and this is not like <laughs> any kind of big-brained idea, that it would circle back to those three essentially in a fight together in some capacity. Um, but things I did not expect is I did not expect Zelda to be as active an agent as a character mm -hmm. in this story as she was. Because um, in Breath of the Wild specifically, she is a, a disembodied voice, more or less, <laughs> until the very end of the uh, game. Um, and that that's, you know, it's tropey. It's, you know, a flat woman character, if you want to get into that. But that's, you know, how most Zelda games have generally existed. Link's hears a voice while he's in bed, and then he takes up sword and shield and goes and saves hey, her. Man, that's, you know, you know, half a dozen <laughs> Zelda games literally start like that. Uh, but I did not expect... First of all, I like time travel stuff kind of i don't know if you want to call this time travel per se but it does play with the concept of time and i really like that because that's been at the core of the zelda mythos since orcarina of time at the very least um even a link to the past in a sense gets to it um and i did not expect zelda i guess we should just say it to become a dragon yeah. <laughs> um that 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 was really rad and dope uh, I wish I could eat a rock and turn into a dragon. I eat a rock and I turn into a corpse. It's not as fun. Uh, but no, so like I did not really expect that. Um, I really liked how the story unfurled, even though I would say it tries to be a little more linear than Breath of the Wild. Um, even though I did not always take the game's hints, it definitely did feel like it kind of directs you into a couple places early. Like I, I think it really wants you to do like Rito Village very early on. Um, because it feels like a lot of the introductory like missions, like especially the bigger ones, like the Dragon Tear stuff is on the way to the Rito yeah. Village. But I still think it came together in the way that Breath of the Wild did and that no matter how you did it, I think the story is satisfying. Um, the way I'd like to describe the surprises is like uh, Emmett over on the Game of Thrones podcast described comedy as like like the best version of it is when the audience realizes the punchline just a second before it's yeah. said. So it's like both realization and comedy hitting at the same moment. And that's kind of what I felt about this game. Like in terms of realizing that Zelda is the dragon, that the master sword is buried in her head, that you're going to do the final battle midair against, Dra you know, Ganon dragon or dragon Ganon or some cute portmanteau <laughs> of that. Um, like all of those things were like, just the split second before they happen, it just like clicked into my brain, like, oh shit, this is what's happening and it's perfect. Um, so that's what it's like. It was built perfectly in a way that it made you realize the things at the moment you should be realizing them is what I'm getting yeah. at. Yeah, because I think for me, this is like, I feel like on this podcast, we often beat the drum of like, you don't need to outsmart your audience. Um, and this game was kind of, fascinating to me i think precisely because of what you've just said there where it like it the things lock into place literally the moment before before they actually happen and it and and it also i think it does this fun thing where like um it it more or less gives you all of the pieces to kind of figure out what's going on but partially obscured which again kind of sounds infantile in, in the course of talking about a story but like one of the things that really was uh, genuinely uh, this is gonna sound like crazy person chat but like genuinely one of the most satisfying parts of the game was when um 
Lincoln's all there beneath the the castle at the start, um, and they're looking at the the murals on the walls. There's one of the murals is covered up by the rocks that look like in, in Breath of the Wild, the rocks that you can bomb. And it drove me absolutely batty. It was the first thing I did when like you regain control after the cutscene was go up and try and bash it with my sword, with the master sword, um, and couldn't get through to it and was like, I know what those rocks are, I know those are bomb rocks. And then when you go back down at the end and you're going through that mural room on your way to basically get if you're me get your shit kicked in for four and a half hours by ganondorf um as you go back down through that room i like was finally able to break those rocks down and it shows the rest of the story it shows zelda becoming the dragon and then link fighting ganondorf and it was like it was that kind of almost Chekhov's gun for me but like in a very true video game narrative sense in that like um it was not the plot you know, the, the, there was not a part of the plot that was literally pulling the trigger on the gun that had been on the wall, but it was me as the player getting to pull the trigger on the gun that was on the wall. And beneath it, it was, it wasn't like a necessary part of the story. It's not like I would have missed anything for having not done that, but because I noticed it at the start and because I spent the next 150 hours of gameplay being like, I can't wait until I see that again. I can't wait until I see that again. And then when I did see it again, it just had that kind of clicking into feeling place of, okay, I know where this is going, even though I knew where it was going. It just had that like kind of perfect calibration of like, like you're saying, it doesn't matter how you get there. You're going to get to the same place in the end. It has a real feeling that the story has was always there. It was just waiting for you to experience it, yeah. um, which is about as well as you can do a narrative in games, I think, yeah. um, because I think people get a little too caught up on cutscenes and linear momentum um, in terms of like, they basically talk about game stories in the same way they talk about books and movies, um, which I think is kind of uh, not doing the medium any credits in terms of what it's capable of or what it's best at um, is that kind of the ability that you are actually actively engaging in the world and the narrative structures around you. Um, and yeah, I think, I think all of that is great. I struggle a little bit just because it's been two months since I played the game um, to remember some of the specifics. But um, what I do want to get at first is I want to talk about Dragon Zelda. Yeah, um, let's go. What were your thoughts about that? Because I always th thought, um, like I liked uh, Breath of the Wild kind of orienting us around dragons, not as like, big bad Elden Ring bosses, mm. but as like spirits that inhabit the place who kind of stand in for like some sort of like totemic natural force or supernatural force rather. Um, and then kind of having Zelda essentially ascend to like godhood via dragon. Um, like I feel like all of that really thematically clicked um, for me, but uh, I know it worked for you as uh, well. It was like... <laughs> One of the things that I, I really liked about it is the this kind of I guess it I guess it there's there are enough instances of it to call it a trope, but this trope of like a woman sacrificing herself and becoming an animal um in the process is is one of these things that like I would call questionably um questionably good. Like uh, the Tolkien example, right, is is Elwing. Um, and Elwing um, casts the Silmaril in, into the sea and becomes a seagull and spends the rest of her day following um, Arendelle around um, and is just a fucking gull. Um, she's not really a gull. She's like a white bird, but she's a fucking seagull. Um, and like it is beautiful in the context of the Silmarillion and it is, is of course, as always with Tolkien's prose, it's a wonderful piece of writing. But it, it's also, it comes from like a deeply sad place. Like Elwing is a deeply sad character. The things that she deals with 
to get her to the point of sacrificing herself in the way that she does is um, incredibly depressing. And you get the sense that she is not a woman that is in control. And, and this thing that is suicide, that is not actually suicide, is is about um, not like a, a kind of um, empowered sublimation of the self to something greater, but like a, the road has come to its end and this sublimation of the self to, to this greater thing is is the only possible way of continuing. Um, Zelda's transformation into the dragon is so much the opposite of that, um, not least because I, the, the memory that we see, the tear that we see the first time that Zelda learns about what um, um, swallowing the stone will do, she, she just gets this look in her eye and it's a wonderful bit of animation where like, she's not saying it, but you can just see that she's going to fucking do it. And, and, and you just know that like, no matter what anyone says to her from then on out, it is going to end that way. Not because she's Zelda and she's not like clever or strong or this, that, or the other enough to do it. And um, in fact, I think the game spends a lot of time showing us that Zelda is the kind of crafty and resourceful person who could come up with an alternate path. But instead, Zelda chooses this because you can tell that she it kind of scratches an itch for her. It's kind of something that like she's basically looking at it going, that's really cool. I'm gonna do it. And turns herself off to all of the other options. Even even if there aren't many other great options, she doesn't really bother trying because she just knows that's what she's going to get to, which is not to say that it's not absolutely tragic when when she does do it and there's not an enormous amount of sadness because she, of course, doesn't realize that she's ever going to be able to transform back. And there's this great sense of, like, romance, like, true, genuine romance in this, not even capital R, just, like, straight-up, like, romance um, in her decision to, to draconify herself. Um, and I just think it's... Um, I know I said this last time we recorded about Zelda, but like this, this game has like a very odd, the, the series, I think in general has a very odd sense of like being very empowering, um, like very empowering of Zelda, despite what Zelda is as a trope. Um, and it's always kind of surprising, even though I know it shouldn't be to just see how much kind of leeway the game writers give her. And um, even though, yes, she is just a like just a woman character and just a princess, they're, they're, they always kind of give her that much more rope to let her be so much more than that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Going all the way back to Ocarina of Time, which I know not to spoil because you are currently playing. Yeah. Um, Zelda's are always been a little bit more than just the damsel in distress. Um, and I've always kind of liked that part. But it really feels like in this game, she is a much bigger character than she ever has been. I mean, literally as a dragon, she is a much bigger <laughs> character than she has been. Um, but I think the part I really like is um, the master sword being embedded in her forehead oh. um, because the whole dragonification is, you know, in part to heal the master sword, um, to give it the millennia of time to actually undo the gloom that has, you know, befallen it, um, which I think is really cool. There's obviously a very sexual component to Link's sword being buried in Zelda yeah. um, and that he must pull it out, which I think is great. Um, and it's also just, it, it makes wonderfully for the mechanics of the game, you know, in which you spend a lot of the time in the sky and falling through the sky and to actually have to go up and get into, uh, you know, her head and pull it out. Um, I pulled the master sword out of countless lost woods and temples of times in the past. Um, it was really cool to see a very different play on that. And one that felt very rewarding for the characters, whereas the Master Sword, usually where you pull it out, is about the setting. And I guess 
Zelda's head could be conceived of as a setting. <laughs> um, but it definitely feels like a much more character-driven story surrounding the Master Sword, which I really yeah, love. Yeah, it, it was remarkable. And and I think, like, you know, there's the kind of lay symbolism of, like, okay, Link's pulling it from her head and not, like, her heart. Like, there is something in, in that as well um, that, you know, though slightly pedestrian, I, I still quite like. But it's, it's also just, like, a visually fucking incredible bit like i did go watch a compilation of all the master sword pulls um and i know like it's a very different experience when you're actually doing it and so as i play through all the games my opinion may change i don't think it will but it might change but like that is just a fantastic master sword pull and and, like like you say because it's more character focused than setting focused it feels like the most satisfying one um and and i think because also before you get there that last that last dragon tier um where you know you get link putting together the fact that zelda has made this sacrifice and has done this thing and and this is the key um engaging with this thing that is like the death the death of the effective death of his girlfriend is like the only way for him to like save the the world like that's a it's a it's a very intense emotionally intense thing that they managed to work in really well and and one of the things i was thinking about is like that the like skyward sword is is like definitely the kind of strongest link of the the kind of pre breath of the wild games for breath of the wild and tears of the kingdom um and and Skyward Sword Link is very emotive, um, and and you just you get a lot more out of his facial expressions, out of even his like the noises that he makes. There's just a lot more going on um, on the surface level there. And, and I was thinking about that in, in in contrast to Tears of the Kingdom, Link, um, who is now very much more an embodied person than Breath of the Wild Link, who's still figuring out who the fuck he is and where he is and what year it is. Um, and, and I think it, there's. I saw people complaining online about the fact that like Link just makes a face when like <laughs> he, he finishes that tier, um, and and how like oh why isn't he reacting? Isn't this horrible? And I think I think there's actually like how how could you possibly react to knowledge like that? Like like I don't think people would actually make a facial expression like uh, like not to say that he doesn't he obviously does but like I don't think that melodrama that people are looking for is actually reflective of the gravity of the situation. Like melodrama is is a or or like big bombastic reactions are for when you have fully processed and understand and have the time to to perform whatever emotion um the situation demands but like the way that the 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 real punch i think the emotional punch that this story packs at every single turn is the fact that there isn't even though there is there isn't really time to process this and the enormity of it all is so great that you can't really process it in a way that makes for like quote unquote good drama it's just this quiet pain that bubbles beneath the surface of the entire plot is you know ten thousand plus years or a hundred thousand i can't remember what the number is um of suffering and and sorrow and sacrifice and grim inevitability and and that just speaks for itself if you are willing to tap into it if you need your hand held and to be like have people cry before you know that they are sad then like yeah maybe you're not gonna have a great time with this but like if you are willing to think about the things that you are doing the story that you're engaging with then like there's so much reward in the just kind of tightness and the quietness and and the sobriety of these emotional moments and then you contrast that with the master sword pole which is just bright and golden and incredible and 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 has stunning music and and that those two things going side by side, this like quiet pain versus the like, all right, we're about to get shit done, just is like chef's kiss perfect. 
Yeah, no, I really like uh, how restrained they are with a lot of those big moments. Not the Master Sword pull, but rather just the discovery of what's going on with Zelda. You don't have Link crying on a Goron shoulder or anything. <laughs> um, you know, don't worry, Link, she'll be fine, Goron. Like, you don't have any of that kind of bullshit happening. Um, but then they know that the moments where you're actually going to pull that Master Sword out, that that's got to be a big, big dramatic fucking moment. Um, and they they really pulled it off. Like, I, I mean... I'll admit, I, I cry at various video games. They tend to usually have a gear, a solid, or a medal in their <laughs> title. But um, th- like this legitimately got me emotional. Um, and it wasn't even, I would say, the most emotional part of the game to me. Um, it, I think that's the ending, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but it was just such a smart choice. And it's building off the world they established in Breath of the Wild. I think that's kind of what helps make it so rich. Um, is the fact that this isn't just, oh, for this game, we're doing the Master Sword like this. It actually does feel like a bit of the, like they thought about the world they created, the Hyrule they created in Breath of the Wild, what the dragon's place were in there, and then how can Zelda and Link and the Master Sword fit within that, as opposed to just like, you know, sitting around a writer's room and saying, what if the sword was in a dragon? Okay, let's go from there. (laughs) Um, I feel like there's a very kind of like deductive, thought process that led into uh, putting the sword in Zelda's dragon forehead. Yeah, and and I think also because there's, like, this, you know, bit of lore or whatever that, like, not everyone can see the dragons. It's only, like, the kind of worthy who can, like, highly as worthy who can see the dragons. And, like, you know, just having that be Zelda's connection is, again, only through those who are, like, worthy of seeing her. Like, obviously, see, like, if you go back and play the starting zone, um, Zelda's just doing laps around the starting zone um, the whole time you're up there on Great Sky Island um, before you jump down onto Hyrule. So she's just, like, watching um, as you do whatever stupid shit, if you're me, get trapped on um, a uh, an island for, like, six hours at the start of the game and be like, I can't believe I've broken my save. Um, or if you play the game like a normal person, she's just watching you do all of that. But, like, her presence is, is genuinely ever-present throughout the start of that game. And, 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 and it makes the things like her alleged betrayals, all of these sightings, Zelda getting the Gorons addicted to crack, um, Zelda <laughs> doing horrible, like, weather shit to the Rito, all of these things, like, it makes those, that sense of betrayal feel like an interlo- interlocking part of her character and of the plot because it is this sense that, like, Zelda is has lost control of who she is in the sense that she chose to become a dragon, but also someone's puppeting her body, Twilight Princess style, um, and doing horrible things, and she's just above all of this happening, literally and 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 symbolically, and can't really do anything to intervene, and it becomes Link's duty or obligation, or or maybe if you ignore doing all of the Zelda stuff like that, um, Link stays the fuck out of it, but really it becomes Link's duty and obligation to kind of crack that record for her um, when she's not there to do it her- herself. And it's that very literal sense of um, being a protector, being a defender, being being a guard, um, and using that to, to kind of uncover this, this sense of a more vital and growing Hyrule. Like, in the Hyrule of Breath of the Wild, there's nothing really to defend. There's no society culture. There's occasionally a gossip column, but, like, there's not really that much for, like, Link to defend her reputation for or to do any investigation of. And in Tears of the Kingdom, like, there is so much more there. It is that much more vital. There, There is... Not only is there, like, um, 
something worth fighting for, but also something kind of worth fighting against, which is like the flightiness of, of people and, and like this desire to make sure that like, even those people who are doing good things silently still, still get their recognition. All of that, I think just is, is one of these remarkable little bits and, and also goes with like this, um, sense of like the, the transfer of information throughout, um, Hyrule, um, especially as you get up to, um, the, the kind of that last kind of one third of the game stretch, um, after you discover that Zelda is the dragon and that, um, and that she is not in fact getting, she's not actually a crack dealer at all. Um, and that is in fact one of Ganondorf's, um, horrible little plans, um, and, and watching like the return of Ganondorf spread throughout Hyrule as you're kind of getting goaded into the castle is I think just one of these it's just a a, a fascinating plot gameplay characterization mechanic that just really brings this game to life yeah honestly now that you talk about it it's almost like Zelda spends half this game being Link in terms of she gets to be the silent person with the master sword flying through the sky even though she's a dragon and can't do anything um, but I do want to talk about Hyrule a little bit, um, because like you say, Breath of the Wild is a fundamentally broken kingdom, um, and I think part of the game is helping stitch ba- stitch that all back together. Um, the Hyrule we see when uh, Link, you know, finally lands on his two feet on <laughs> the solid ground um, is a much more progressed um, Hyrule. They've invented at least the printing press, it seems like. Um, and they're also dealing with an outbreak of capitalism. There's apparently been a... A revolution away from the feudal mode of production, um, <laughs> pretty much across the lands. Um, and we're also seeing environmental disasters in pretty much all the major villages, whether it's weather storms or um, sandstorms or like oil spills or crack, <laughs> crack in your name. <laughs> I, um, it, it, it is really funny how. Um, it all kind of gets placed on Zelda, and then you layer in all the stable stories where it's like, I saw Zelda like stealing horses or, you know, feeding monsters and some shit like that. And it's really funny. Um, It's almost like this game is about fake news, which I know it's not, (laughs) but it's almost like it's kind of veering towards that. It totally is. I love, I love, like, the journalist. I think that's, like, one of the most, like, delightful little subplots um, in in the game. I, I just, like, I had so much fun tearing through all of those. And, like, I just like this idea that, like, there is a quiet mundanity to what um to what Link is doing, quiet enough that he can like literally just fuck around and be like, ah, what's the ego clan up to today? Um and also that like in a kind of more serious emotional sense that he's like literally being haunted by this ghost of his girlfriend and like she's just showing up in all the weirdest places and he's having to like process that or deal with that not like in a quiet way like a breath of the wild but like literally in the the pages of a newspaper like and there's something so like funny and and kind of what you're getting at like kind of modern about it like link is basically dealing with like a like a legend of zelda style like twitter cancellation i guess (laughs) (laughs) oh that is really funny it's like if they printed in the newspaper that my girlfriend was like destroying society i would Oh, I would totally lose my shit. <laughs> Pick up that. a ukulele um, and sing your way through it. <laughs> oh, God. Um, let's see here. Do, uh, before we get to that name, do you want to talk a little bit about the Zelda and Link love story? Because I would say this, um, at least of the mainline Zeldas that I've beaten, is definitely has the most romantic overtur- overtones. 
um, and has probably the most depth of relationship between the two um, that I can recall. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, it, it, they're not, it's like, if you don't care about it, you could ignore it more or less, um, or it's just like, it's not really in your face. But like, um, if you are interested in it, there's a lot there. I think like, for, for me, it obviously starts with like, um, well, I mean, I, I guess the opening scene, whatever. But like, for, for me, the kind of interest and intrigue starts with, um, making your way back to Hatato Village and seeing the house that was yours that was Link's in Breath of the Wild um, is now inhabited by Zelda um, and then going and finding Link's hairband um, in the well out back um, and, and there's just like there's this quiet domesticity about it um, that that feels like the rest of this game vastly more lived in in comparison to Breath of the Wild um, and it feels calm and you know Zelda's talking about getting clothes made for Link and she's also teaching at a school and the school is very like small and cookie cutter and not very quote unquote epic and and there is just a sense that it is like a kind of um autumn leaves um sort of love like it is very simple it is very low-key um and 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 you see that the this kind of um it's just in all the little details um all throughout um all throughout the game that it really comes to life and in again in the small and domestic ways and then you you contrast it with the the tears the the tears of the dragon where there is that sense of sort of like high fantasy epic romance to it and and across a hundred thousand years like zelda's zelda is still you know nodding her head off about Link to the point where like the first king of Hyrule is like I know all about this little freak of a guy um, so much so that I'm going to keep myself alive for a hundred thousand years just to like dunk on him um, and help him through and like you know Zelda's cute in these in these memories she's blushing and she's very happy and sweet and like in Breath of the Wild, where she was a teenage girl who like bad things happened to, um, she is very much like a young woman now like in her first kind of real relationship. And you can just see that there's so much care in how they have chosen to portray this and how they have chosen to kind of take these small details and put them aside the high fantasy ones to create something that feels so human and, and so so wonderful. And and one of the things for me then is once you start that sprint towards the end of um the game, when you're in um when you're getting taunted by Zelda's puppeted form, um you're taken through all of these places in, in Hyrule Castle. And um, if you pay attention in Breath of the Wild, in the Breath of the Wild memories, um, or just in bits and pieces of Breath of the Wild standard gameplay, they're all places that have like special meaning, not just for Zelda, but for Zelda and Link. Um, and, mm-hmm. and there are things like, you know, little, like there's, um, what is it? Is it the, I think it's the Highland Guard's hat is hidden in a chest in Zelda's, um, bedroom in Hyrule Castle and um, I think the boots are in the or Zelda, something of Zelda's is in like the the guards hall in Hyrule Castle and as you're going through these places if you're not paying attention looking out for those details then they're just places to go just you know another stop on this trying to catch um, Zelda slash Ganondorf um, quest but if you are paying attention they they show this kind of unfolding relationship and and the echoes of the kind of past that was for them um and 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 there's just something so lovely and and also quite intense about that and then you get through to the ending which we'll talk about in a second and and that to me is just like 
the one of the most I think intense romances I've seen in in the Legend of Zelda series so far. In that it is like true capital R high romance, um, and and like you know heart crushingly so at points. There's there's and it is because I think because it's largely unvocalized, even though it's obviously acknowledged it's unvocalized and that lack of a vocalization of of this romance and in comparison to the the grandeur of the actions of it, I think makes it feel all that much more incredible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know why, but have you seen the M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village? Yeah. I don't know why, but it kind of, their love story kind of reminds me about that, oh. where Joaquin Phoenix is just the quiet boy who does what he needs to do, whereas uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is always doing yes. things, I guess. Yes. <laughs> um, it just, it, I don't know why, but it just kind of put that picture in my mind for some reason. Um, of the temples, um, the dungeons, and I'll include Hyrule Castle among them, as well as where you find Minoru. Um, did you have a favorite or um, anything you wanted to talk about with those? Um, I'm really stupid. So I was really bad at most of them. Um, but the Spirit Temple rocked. Um, I stumbled upon the Spirit Temple before I was meant to, um, before I dealt with Dragonhead Island. Um, mm-hmm. And that was just like, finding out was incredible. Actually going through the like motions of, of doing it was like, it wasn't as complex, I guess, as all the other ones, which I was really bad at doing. Um, but it felt very like this is this game turned up to 11. Like, holy shit, what have these guys done with this game? No game will ever beat this. Um, that really felt like the game pumping it out 110%. Um, and, and it also just felt like um, it, it felt like the the game kind of... Um, for, not forcing you, I guess forcing you, forcing you to engage with this mechanic that, like, for me at least, until that point, I had not been very good at building anything. Like, I was not spending a lot of time. Like, I'd attach a rocket to a shield and do that, but I hadn't been doing very much more <laughs> mm-hmm. until that temple. And then I kind of started to realize how powerful that mechanic actually was. And so even though it was kind of the back half of me playing that game, um, it, 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 it was the game... Um, forcing you to acknowledge more or less just how fucking good it is um and normally i think i wouldn't be quite so happy about it it happening in a you know in a a lesser game i'd be a bit like okay whatever but like in this game i was like i you are right like you are definitely a better game than any other game fair enough (laughs) if that if that's crazy um... not crazy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not. Um, I also uh, stumbled into the Sparrow Temple way early. Um, it was actually the second temple I did. Um, I thought the whole point was that you have to stumble around in the Rain Island, not knowing where to go <laughs> um, until you actually hit into something and then are able to get underground. And I just luckily had enough hearts to open the door and complete the Minoru quest. Um, so I, I was able to do it um, as my second temple, which was weird. And then it was kind of like, oh... I could have had this a lot easier because there's a whole quest line after you beat the four villages that'll break the rainstorm. And then you can just like navigate freely. There's a nice little shrine there as a save point. It's like, nope, none of that. Um, I fucking just wandered through the rain for about an hour until I hit something up there. Um, Because, you know, the game doesn't really stop you from doing anything. And this is a Breath of the Wild thing too. But if you can think of a solution for it, it'll probably work. Um, There's so many times where I'm like, there's no way I can build something that will get me up there or all the way over there. And almost always I can get just close enough that I'm able to do it. Um, Or, you know, wing it from the last by gliding or climbing or whatever. Um, And yeah, I was not, I am not a person who was building Gundams or Metal Gears (laughs) in Hyrule with the stuff. Like for a lot of people, they love that. I imagine like the portal generation and the Minecraft generation, like they love that shit. 
Um, that's not really me. I'm more likely to, you know, strap two fans to like a hoverboard and just like, hey, just shoot me like 200 yards forward and then I'll I'll make do from there <laughs> kind of situation. Yep. But even that like I, was great. <laughs> um, I loved it. Um, I really enjoyed it, but I did still tend to fall back on my Breath of the Wild traversal favorites. Um, mostly just climbing and especially flying. Um, I love just like warping to sky islands and then falling in the direction I wanted to. Um, specifically when you get the entire flight suit, yeah. um, you can cover a lot of ground uh, when you're doing that, which I really loved. Um, but uh, we should, let's talk about um, the final sequence, the final um, stretch of this game. Um, the final dungeon is located underneath Hyrule Castle. Hyrule Castle is a dungeon on its own, but it's not the final dungeon. Uh, and then underneath uh, Central Hyrule, the Central Hyrule Chasm, um, you they 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 uh, kind of block it off really well because I went down that chasm really early in the game, um, and then everywhere is just covered with gloom. There's like an electric like same same or whatever those little things that stick to the wall that try to suck you up. Um, and then if you clear all that, there's like a silver maned Lionel waiting for you. So like, unless you're like either the best video game player ever, or at least have done like 50% of the game, like you are just not getting past <laughs> those things, uh, right away. But then after that, the like last kind of stretch of the final dungeon isn't too bad. Um, you do have to fight off your like gloom hands and whatnot. Um, I do want to call out that one thing maybe we didn't mention last time is that the gloom hands have the eye of Sauron in them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that that's been a kind of a design flourish all the way back to the Nintendo 64, like, or even the NES, like Zelda baddies have always had like an eye. That's a weak spot. Um, that's a very common thing for them. Uh, but it did feel very Sauron-y, especially because you would kind of be engulfed in this gloom world. Um, that felt a little bit like the ring world, um, like the Lord of the Rings ring world, not the other thing. That's also a ring world like Halo. Uh, but uh like i i really uh enjoyed this final stretch of material it has that whole wonderful uh mural reveal like you mentioned um it wasn't trying to be like say hyrule castle was in the first game um which is this like big elaborate dungeon granted you can just fly to the top if you have some good skills and rivali's gale um but like that felt like a really byzantine um, like it really felt like a final dungeon where this felt more like an on-ramp to the final battle, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I was surprised as well because I felt like when you start to get to that kind of end of the game, and I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm coming to the end of the game. And then I like, I just wasn't like, there was still like a solid 90 minutes plus four hours of being in misery, not knowing how to parry left for me um, in that. And and I think it was one of these things where like Breath of the Wild, you basically walk into the whatever it is, the sanctum and that's it. End game starts. And there's not a huge amount like that you can't do before the end game. Um, and, and not to say that there's stuff that you can't do before um, the Tears of the Kingdom endgame, but the, the world just kind of unlocks in a slightly different way in the, like, 90 minutes before you get there. And that felt like you were really, like, they were not funneling, well, yeah, funneling you, I guess. They were funneling you, on-ramping you into this very specific ending, but it felt vastly more drawn out than than Breath of the Wild did. Uh, to its benefit, of course. I'm not bitching about it. I think it was incredible. But it, it was notab notable to me how much more it felt like they were vamping to get to the end. Mm -hmm. no I, definitely definitely um 
So uh, one 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 guy, uh, some one dude we haven't really talked about is Ganon. Um, before we get into talking about him, um, how do you feel about Ganon, like in his like Tokugawa shogunate mode in this game? Um, because he literally is just like Toshiro Mifune on steroids when he's not in his like Demon King form. Uh, I, I really like the Ganon uh, kind of visuals this time around. Um, I like that he's like a big beefy boy. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I've just really taken because um, I've seen so many versions of Ganon. Um, sometimes they're not super flattering or, you know, maybe have a hint of like anti-Semitism yep. to them. Uh but uh, this like design I felt very strongly about was really dope. Um, no real complaints here. Um, and I think because Ganondorf, like the man or the person, whatever he is, the Gerudo, um, just feels a little more physically impo- imposing than he ever has. Um, usually he's kind of like a dude until he turns into a giant pig or whatever. Uh, but this time I really felt like he and they kind of make him as like a one-on-one swordsman with Link versus like the way they've tried to create his character and his kind of battles in previous yeah, games. Yeah, I mean it all fucking rocks. Uh, Ganon, like Ganondorf, is like creepy as shit in this. Um, there's one of the tears ends with him just laughing, and I was playing it late at night and and genuinely had like a pang of like fear. And I love hor- watching horror movies, and I love watching horror movies late at night. So I'm not like I'll get a little spooked, but I'm not usually like oh god. Um, check the what's around the corner under the bed but like it had me feeling a bit like that um the look is incredible i think the plot is incredible i love the tears where you see him like fucking around with um with uh, the the royal the first royal family of hyrule all of that is incredible the bits with sonya incredible um the i have to say because I, I love critical role um i matthew mercer voices ganondorf in this i thought he was perfect mm-hmm. for it you could really like he had that like ian mcdermott is playing palpatine kind of thing where you could tell he was just having the time of his life and like because you could tell he was having the time of his life the whole character felt that much more fun and interesting to to kind of deal with and then of course there was the incredible look um and I think also contrasted as well to like the shadow Ganons that you pop up and fight um, when you take out the mm-hmm. many handed eye of Sauron um, and, and seeing those kind of two different physicalities, those two different character looks really compounded the like, man, this Ganondorf is fucking baller. Like he just he just rocks. He like the Toshiro Mifune comparison is perfect because like he just does have that like rugged coolness to him. Yeah, no, I didn't even realize that, yeah, the Phantom Ganons that pop up over Hyrule um, when you beat the Gloomhands are a different type of Ganon than the Ganon you fight under Central Hyrule. Um, He is that skinny Phantom Ganon kind of archetype, kind of like the corpse of the Demon King that you find at the beginning of the game, whereas the one you fight under Hyrule Castle is your uh, thick Gerudo man (laughs) um, that is Ganondorf. Um, Let's talk about that fight, because I know... Um, it was a little difficult for a, a lot of people because <laughs> this game, unlike Breath of the Wild, didn't necessarily cultivate some of the mechanics um, in the same way. Um, I think the Guardians in Breath of the Wild, um, Wild <laughs> rather, um, really made you like, or made me, I won't speak for everyone, <laughs> like learn how to parry. <laughs> um, just because uh, reflecting the laser blast back at the Guardians would one-shot them and you'd get the full like item drop from them, like all the different guardian parts for your ancient arrows and whatnot. Um, this game, I, I did not parry once. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I did not parry once. And um, that w- I think that is a key part of this battle is like you either need to be able to parry 
or what I think some people may not have realized is that you can do the flurry rush evade thing where you do that perfect time backflip or side jump. Um, you need to do that consecutively, and that unlocks a hit window on Ganon. Um, that's how I did it. Um, basically, he would come in. You have to do that perfect evade jump. Um, and then when you try to strike back, he will evade you and then try to attack again. And you have to do it one more time. Um, and that was able, that was how I was able to, uh, basically take him on during that fight. Um, I assume you were eventually able to succeed at that as well. Uh, yes. My, uh, well thought out and planned strategy was cooking a shit ton of Sunday Lion meals and then just taking the hit for an hour and a half on and um it was brutal uh, i'd never felt like more of a dipshit than realizing that the answer was learning to play the game the way that everybody else is playing it and that like i'm serious it took me like a key middle of like six five six hours to get through the stupid fucking end um because i kept doing it and then going back to a different save to like go get meals and then not making enough sunday line meals and then just being mad about it and then having to do it again and it was painful i mean it was still fun i watched the cutscene every single time i did it because it was like so compelling and the master's like little master sword pull there where he's like all right let's go let's fucking throw down like that is incredible mm -hmm. loads of fun i have about 10 million different screenshots and different fits each time um but yeah i did not do that right and suffered greatly for it and was embarrassed um badly but i also loved that like um through the multiple phases of the the fight like the multiple phases of breath of the wild um Ganon gets bigger and piggier <laughs> um, and Zelda <laughs> kind of gets to chime in a bit more but there's like a sense that like when you were out on Hyrule Field battling him for the last time even though Zelda is there like it's still a very lonely battle um, the moment when all of the other stages arrive um, in in the, the kind of final bit of the final battle mm -hmm. against Ganondorf just it, like it hits so hard and just perfectly underlines this game's sense of like there is a community here Link does not have to do this alone neither does Zelda there there is so much more going on um in Hyrule now than there was um largely through Link and Zelda's own efforts predominantly Zelda's efforts um there is a there is the A team here to, to help out and that that was kind of like one of those moments where I was like ooh goosebump love it um very cool and watching them kind of duke it out, I guess, <laughs> in a not really helpful way, um, while you try and to not get murdered um, in that last little bit there, just it, it just felt so cohesive and nice that I didn't really mind <laughs> getting my shit rocked for several hours on end in the most embarrassing way imaginable. <laughs> oh, I I actually kind of forgot about the part where all the other champions show up. I thought that was really cool. Um, eat shit, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> But also, uh, like we talk, we or we um, these games talk often about Ganon leading armies and like that final flurry of enemies that you have to battle. You have to fight like battalions of you know moblins and boboclins and hobgoblins, whatever all they are. But it actually feels like he is sending an army after you, which I felt like it felt really good because. Even going back to Breath of the Wild, they talk about the calamity and you see these murals of these armies marching on Hyrule. Um, but in Breath of the Wild, the enemies were still just like little clans, more or less, or one-off bosses. Um, here in Tears of the Kingdom, just like Hyrule has gotten society in advance, it feels like the enemies have as well. There's mar much more like scouting parties and roving parties. You have those big boss boblicans with their like 
troops behind <laughs> them. Um, you have some of them in like essentially siege siege Warcraft with their like battle taluses. Um, so I like the fact that they really worked in like some kind of like enemy army aspect to the end of it. And that's a great way to pull in the champions. Cause I like the idea of breath of the wild where, um, beating the divine beast allowed you to like take life off of get, like, I like the communal aspect mm-hmm. there, but I feel like just getting them involved as characters into the final battle just works a lot better. Um, both as a story and as a yeah, game. Cause, cause like the, the champions in breath of the wild are like taking part in that final battle battle but at a real distance like the 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 connectivity there the connective tissue there is the destruction of ganon literally just the destruction of ganon whereas like the connective tissue for the sages is this like is something that is greater it is like the like friendship that literally zelda being like uh i don't think Link's gonna be particularly diplomatic a hundred thousand years from now can you make sure that your ancestors are nice to him <laughs> like my boyfriend said he wanted two packets of ketchup not mayo um but from a hundred thousand years back um but like you know zelda is being a diplomat she's building these links and that those links are are had stayed alive and stayed healthy and been rebuilt in the time since the the calamity um and and it feels like it's a much more positive sense of an alliance. It's it's not one that's just about taking down Ganondorf. And and like the ending scene really, I think, does show that like it is an alliance that is going to continue to prosper um, after this this one goal has has been accomplished. There are now going to be many other goals um, that these that this group of people um, beings, I guess, um, will you know work hand in glove on. And I think there's just. It, that just is another kind of enunciation of like this whole theme of like rebuilding and regrowth and 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 vitality that you get in this new tears of the king not new in in tears of the kingdom that is building off of the the productive end of breath of the wild mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh one last thing i really wanted to say about the ganon sword fight stuff was um i like so at the beginning of the game you know link starts out with full hearts and everything um, and then when the Demon King touches him and breaks his blade, he literally destroys all but three of Link's hearts. It's a cool way to reset yeah. Link to, you know, um, the beginning state of gameplay that we are familiar with Link. Um, but to do it organically and through story, I think was really great. Um, I like So like we talked about in our first episode that down in the depths with the gloom, um, what it would do, it would basically gloom away heart so you couldn't. Um, so that you would have to eat some kind of sundalion or sun-infused um, thing to like regain those hearts, and then you can fill them back up with normal food. Um, they call back to that very opening scene mechanic again by when Ganon, he will, he will gloom you, but then if he gets you again, he can break those hearts. So he literally is like chopping off bits of your life as you go. It's not just like you're losing health, but you'll never be able to reclaim that health, which I think is fun to like circle back to that mechanic while also adding that extra level of difficulty and challenge that you kind of look for in a final boss. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, oh, there's just so much I like about it. So did you ever have a point um, when you were playing the start of the game where you thought that the arm was Ganon? Yes, absolutely. Right, good. Okay, good, um, great. I thought I was like particularly stupid for that. But like I feel like that kind of sense of like that give and take, that like bodily give and take, even if it isn't like it isn't Ganon's arm, but like that I feel like is a crucial part of that whole dynamic and, and it really feeds into the heart. Heart taking, the heart eating. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. But okay. Let's let's uh let's get into the sky here. Oh. Um I, I I love this. This is when I said, you know, I cried harder at the ending. It kind of starts here. 
um, because it was as uh, Ganon was turning into the dragon and we were all shooting up into the sky. It was like right then, it was like, oh, Zelda's going to get involved yep. here. Like Link is going to come and she's going to come and catch him, um, which I, I love. Um, I'm a big, I mean, this is not a uncommon take, but I love when the final battle, the final boss, the end of a game really encapsulates like some of the key mechanics of the game. Um, like it feels like it's culminating the gameplay as much as it is culminating the story. Um, and this is what I felt with uh, fighting Dragon Ganon up in the sky. Um, like that rush you get when uh, Zelda first pops up and saves Link and then you're riding and you realize what this final battle is going to be. Um, it's very similar in parts to the Kolgara battle. Um, the one who uh, haunts the Rito village or the whatever shipbreaker thing that's up in the sky um, in the fact that that's also an aerial battle with kind of like key weak spots that you have to kind of like dive around and get to. Um, I thought all of that was just fantastic. Like I've mentioned a couple of times, I probably spent more time in the sky and flying around than anyone else. I was really taken with that mechanic. Um, so I just fucking love flying around. Um, it's a nice twist on Ganon because you're just used to him turning into a pig at this <laughs> point or a giant boar. Um, so to see kind of a different manifestation of that, but it also feels in line with the dragons we know from this version of Hyrule. Um, and it's it feels like a good escalation of quote-unquote stakes, which is a, not something I usually care about. But it felt like, okay, there was a lot of thought put into this one where like kind of the end of Breath of the Wild, which again, a game I love and I think is one of like the five best games of all time. Like it felt like you're fighting that golden Ganon pig at the end just because everyone knows Ganon turns into a pig. Um, whereas I feel like him turning into a dragon um, is narratively satisfying on its own. And then to couple that with fighting like dragon to dragon with Link flying around between them is just like chef's kiss. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And I, and I think there's also like Ganon, Ganon, Ganondorf's loneliness feels so much more like poignant in those moments because like it's not that Zelda is the stronger dragon. It's that Zelda was the stronger person before she became the dragon and she she Ooh, forged those that. connections that, that mattered. And um, and so it is the fact that Link is the one that's flying around between them. That is the game changer. It, it's nothing I don't think anything inherent about Link. Um and nothing really inherent about Zelda. It's about that connection, that relationship between them. Like I, I love that when Link just lets go of Dragon Zelda. She always she always finds him. Like whenever he is about to run out of stamina, she always finds him. And 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 it's like obviously you need it to work for the game to work, but it's also a fantastic bit of characterization. And Ganondorf has has eaten the stone and is a dragon now, this all powerful not all powerful, but incredibly powerful entity. But like he's still basically a sitting duck because all you're doing is taking pot shots at him and he can only really kinda hurt you. Um and so in this moment of immense power, um, it is the fact that he has become too big, essentially, um, too big and too lonely that that he is ultimately taken down. And for all of that to happen um in the sunlight above Hyrule. Um, in an incredibly visible location, um, and in and in like basically in the clear spring air, I think has that just it, it has that real lovely sense of like rebirth, purification, all of these things that um, Hyrule may have been sort of missing a little bit um, after the events of Breath of the Wild and coming into the start of Tears of the Kingdom. Hmm. Hmm. Um. Speaking of rebirth, I got a little bit of the vibe of Gandalf fighting the Balrog, Hell, falling yes. through the sky and uh, like sticking your sword in his head and all that stuff. 
Um, it was also fun. I'm someone who saves the last boss of the game to be like the last thing I do in a game usually. Um, so it was fun kind of emptying out the inventory. Like what happens when I attach this silver main Lionel horn to an nice. arrow? Well, it takes off about a third of his life. It was like really kind of fun to unleash in the final stretch of the game um, because I tend to be someone who holds on to inventory, especially yep. like high value items. Uh, so it is nice knowing like I'm not going to play this game for another two years and I'll probably start with the fresh save. Um, so I, I'm just going to go balls to the wall and unload. Um, and it did, I don't feel like it diminished at all. It wasn't like I was cheesing the boss or anything like that. Um, it, it did a good job of maintaining its difficulty. Um, something that sometimes these two Zelda games struggle with in terms of like power scaling as you go up in the game. Um, cause some enemies just take annoyingly long to kill, even when you're like uber powerful. Um, but I think they like really tuned that correctly for the end game. Yep. I, I still um, like I'm impressed with you having done basically all of it before hitting the thing hitting the the final battle because I still haven't killed a Gleok and I'm still shit scared of doing it. Um and it it feels to me like Ganon Ganon wasn't quite small potatoes, but like there feels like there is so much else that's so fucked up in Hyrule. <laughs> like Ganondorf yes. isn't even the half of it now. And like now I got to go build like a predator drone um, and start an illegal war to take out the King Gliok that's kicking about somewhere. And like it, it, there's just this kind of scalability that like the symbolic and narrative end is there. But like there's still so much else that's going on <laughs> that I have to fucking deal with now. Oh, yeah. There's like five King Gliocks. Oh, my God. Just so you I'm going to cry. So be prepared. I haven't even uh, beaten a Lionel. Most of them are in the sky. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, how, how did you get through Breath of the Wild? I don't, I don't know. Even I don't know. know. Uh, <laughs> uh, another thing that I think is really great about the ending as we slowly start pushing into the actual game's finish is that one of the, I wouldn't call it a, something people have criticized about these two games is the general lack of soundtrack. Um, or score, a regular scoring that is pretty common for a AAA game. Um, I think there's a reason it's kind of broken and just little like piano like diddle, diddles here and there. Um, I think that actually works for what these games are about. But that also allows for the sequence where you pull the Master Sword or where you're fighting Ganon up in the sky um, to allow that like traditional like John Williams-esque style score to like blare as you're f flying through the sky fighting the dragon. I'm pretty sure I heard some like Ocarina of Time uh, little melodies yeah. in there on top of like the very, very familiar main Hyrule Field slash Zelda theme that we all know and love. Um, that gets a couple tremendous plays uh, through the final sequences. Um, and that's what I really like. They're, it's not like they're just like, oh, we're not doing a score for this game. It's like they specifically held it back because they knew when to use it and how to use it, which I really appreciate. My favorite deployment of music in this game is Link humming the different classic Zelda songs. And also the reason they're never <laughs> going to release what those are is he's definitely doing the Star Wars theme at one point. Um, and I'm convinced we will never find out officially what it is because they don't want to get sued. But if you hear it, it, it's definitely it's definitely just the Star Wars opening theme. Um, and I think that's also like... It's, it's just one of these things, because this game also has a lot more throwbacks to, like, other games. Like, I'm spending all of my time collecting all of the classic fits. I just got Sheik's Mask the other day. That was exciting. Um, just one of these things where it's kind of like, it's it's not so much a winking, hey, don't forget to buy the other games kind of reference like we're so used to. It's more like a, all of these stories can exist in this story and don't sweat the details quite so much. Um, which is also, I feel like, kind of an answer to the fuss and bitterness about the like score is like stop sweating the details stop demanding that everything be served to you like on a silver platter 
do a little bit of allowing yourself to just kind of like marinate in it and you will find that much more enjoyment um, out of it for having put in the work to get the outcome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so the final blow that uh, Link deals Zelda um, is thrusting his sword into Ganon's head, um, which is kind of neat because this is also, um, it's kind of the reverse of the Zel or Link pulling out the Master Sword animation. Um, going back to all the times it's been in the Lost Woods or the Temple of Time, um, this is him driving it into uh, Ganon's head. Um, anyone who read the Link to the Past manga that ran in Nintendo Power <laughs> back in 1992 <laughs> um, will also remember that um, Link thrusting his sword into various rocks to blow shit up was a big part of <laughs> that manga. Um, so that's kind of like a little thing that I really appreciated. Um, yeah, it was just so good. Um, I, I don't know what else to say, but I love that everything that kind of transpires at the end is almost without dialogue. Um, like the whole sequence where after you defeat Ganon, he he blows up like a nuke, first of all. Um, I don't know <laughs> where that idea came from, but sure. Uh, and then uh, probably because Oppenheimer was coming out this year. I don't know. Uh, but uh, like there's this whole sequence where um, the spirits of not Minoru, but... Uh, Right, I was gonna say Raiden. That is not who. What's the Raru. Raru? There we go. Um, Raru and his wife, whatever. Sonia. <laughs> Sonia there we go. <laughs> um, uh, what's it called? They like show up in like the spirit realm or whatever. Um, and they with Link like combine hands. They like restore Zelda to her body. Um, which I think is all great. They're not like saying now, Link, we can restore her to who she really was and all that kind of like bullshit. They're just like. We're going to do it. And then all of a sudden you're back falling in the sky again. Um, and now you are Link without a glider, which I really mm -hmm. love. You start like I thought this game was so baller from the get go when they start you in the Sky Islands, but take away the glider from you because um, that would have been a crutch, yeah. right? You wouldn't have been forced to learn how to play the game. And even when you get to mainland Hyrule, they don't give you the glider right away. You actually have to do things yeah. for it. Um, so I love that you're returning to that like. I don't know, state of nature almost, like where you started, your square zero. Um, you're falling through the sky without a glider. Um, and then, of course, it's just like main Zelda theme kicks in, um, super romantic, like reach, reach, reach. They even have one of those uh, what button response or what QTE events, as they, they're called in the uh, gaming world, um, so that you have to keep pulling and trying to grab her oh. um, before diving into the watery landing. It, it, it's great. I... I fucking hate the 2010s internet for ruining the word epic because I would just literally describe this whole final sequence yeah. as epic. Um, but now people associate that with bacon instead of things like Legend of Zelda. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that bit where like Link is carrying Zelda out of the water is just like, it looks like a pre-Raphaelite painting. It's just the, like it, it is aesthetically what a legend should look like. Um, I, I just loved it. My heart was aching at it and it was such a beautiful kind of end to well, just a beautiful end to, to to the story, but also a beautiful resolution to Zelda's heartbreak in, in Breath of the Wild, the thing that ultimately kickstarts her 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 containment power. Um, you know, her holding Link in her arms as Link almost dies. Um, having that resolved with this at the end of it, I just think is is a very good and clever and nice move that definitely doesn't make me a little sniffly to think about. Definitely not, definitely not. Um, and I like that I would 
I don't want to call it a post-credit scene, but I would say like the game kind of ends here. There is stuff that comes afterwards. Um, but I like that in a way they let this moment be an ending for the game um, where it is just kind of Zelda and Link staring into each other's eyes in a field. Link has lost his shirt somehow. <laughs> um, I assume his nipples were chafing him. Um, but it, it's I like I like how small that that moment could be. Um, and then uh, we got, you know, a great end credit sequence. Um, but then we are actually taken back into the sky in the end. Um, and we kind of see Link and Zelda and the champions. And for some reason, Pyrrha is there. <laughs> um, I assume just because she is so fucking hot that everyone would want to yep. see her again. Yep. Um, and it just, they, it, it's not like it feels like they're setting up another game, but they are talking about even though this story is over, our story is not. In, uh, that maybe didn't come out as smart as I wanted it to sound. <laughs> um, but it does definitely, like there's a world goes on kind of motion here. Um, and I do think there will actually be a third sequel or a third sequel, a third uh, iteration of this version of Zelda, um, hopefully on like the Switch 2 or whatever random arcade cabinet that Nintendo releases <laughs> for its next gen- gaming system. Yeah, it's it's got that very Lord of the Rings end to it, where it's like there are still so many stories to be told in this. Um, this story that you like, this book that you're currently reading now is not going to tell you those stories, but like, rest assured, there are more of those stories. Um, and and the question is like whether they will be actual tangible stories that like are gifted to us by Nintendo for the low low price of seventy fucking quid, um, or if they're just going to be stories that live at the edges of your daydreams and and in that kind of liminal space between fiction and and nonfiction. Um, and and. As with all things, I think Legend of Zelda, a, a series that names itself um, about its liminality, its, its truthful liminality, um, ending in in that way, in that with that kind of invitation to imagine more or to potentially experience more later, um, is it's remarkably nice. I know Nintendo is a deeply cynical company, um, but that did not feel like a deeply cynical ending to me at all. Uh do you think Princess Zelda pursued a policy of Moblin genocide? Yeah. Um, what do you think her tax policy was? Uh, she was not a bitch like Aragorn. She fucking slaughtered them by their thousands, and she charged 100% tax on all of the peasants. And if there was ever a peasant uprising, she sent Link out with the Master Sword to just fucking slaughter him, and she's a girl boss. Beautiful. <laughs> Um, I think this will probably be the end of our discussions on Tears of the Kingdom, or at least episodes on them. Um, any last thoughts you want to share about this? I know you've started playing some other Zelda games. Um, um I think big- everybody should go to YouTube and watch the 1980s Zelda cartoon. It's mm-hmm. the worst thing you'll ever see, but it does give you, well, excuse me, princess, which will just live in your head forever. Um, and it is literally the diametric opposite of this game it is quite possibly the shittiest thing I've ever seen. But um, a nice palate cleanser for if you're wondering how you're going to move on at the end of such a perfect game. <laughs> um, I, I'm sure you just assumed this, but I, I watched that show live. <laughs> Yes, um, incredible. Um, because it was part of the like the Super yes. Mario Brothers hour or half hour, um, which had these like two maybe they were famous actors, but I was four years old, I didn't know who they were. But two very slovenly yes. guys played Mario and Luigi in live action. They danced through the credits, um, and I, I did not care for it at all. But every it's like they always had a Mario cartoon in there. 
Um, and then like once a week, I feel like they would do a Zelda cartoon and it was like the worst cartoon I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> but it is like, it was, the only, it was, I love Zelda as a five-year-old. Like I was addicted to my NES version. So seeing it in a video game, seeing Link take out like a miniature boomerang out of his pocket and then it grows to full size. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's how he keeps all those things on him. I'm like, that's cool. Um, dog shit cartoon. <laughs> love it so much. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod where you'll get early access to episodes as well as a bunch of Patreon-exclusive content. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter and I suppose Blue Sky as well. I don't know what I am on Blue Sky, um, which is where I'll be standing on a corner wondering why my beautiful blonde haired crack dealer hasn't shown up yet. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, we are Sun and Done. <laughs> yeah.